to this edition of the JNNP podcast. My name is Colin Mahoney and I'm the journal's podcast editor. As we celebrate 100 years of the JNNP, we continue to look back at some of the most highly cited papers as part of our 2020 vision series. This month we remember the 1954 paper entitled The Treatment of Manic Psychosis by the Administration of Lithium Salts by Shu and colleagues. Joining me today to discuss their commentary in the April edition of the JNMP is Professor Andrew Lees. Professor Lees is well placed to discuss this as Professor of Neurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and Emeritus Director of the Rita Leila Weston Institute of Neurological Studies at UCL's Institute of Neurology. Many of us are also very familiar with Professor Lee's phenomenal research impact over the years, particularly in the areas of movement disorders, where he's one of the most highly cited authors with an impact factor of 132 and has served in, as a co-editor of the journal Movement Disorders. A very uh, warm welcome and th- many thanks uh, for joining us to discuss your excellent commentary today, Professor Lee's. It's a pleasure to be doing this podcast in this important year for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry. So you've looked back at, um, at, this, at the 1954 paper and although Shu probably established the use of lithium in today's pharmacopoeia, he wasn't the first to notice its benefit. Can you start by explaining some of the backstory to the discovery of lithium's effectiveness in psychiatric illness? The, the story of lithium's use in psychiatry begins with John Cade a young Australian psychiatrist and amateur naturalist who, after returning from a Japanese prisoner of war camp in World War II, where he was interned in Singapore, he determined to make up for lost time in his medical career and try and find a cure for manic depression. He believed that uh, all psychiatrists, in fact all physicians, should spend some of their time doing research. And during his time in Chang'ai camp, he'd seen a number of his fellow prisoners uh, develop manic depression. So he determined that he was going to try and find better treatments for mania. At that time, the only treatments available were barbiturates and electroshock therapy. So there was a need for a better treatment. So when he got back to... Australia and got an appointment at the Bandura Repatriation Mental Hospital. He set up a makeshift laboratory in a disused kitchen in the hospital and he carried out uh, what proved to be quite a crucial experiment. Uh, He observed that lithium induced a calming effect and a reduction in seizures in guinea pigs that had been injected with urea and this led on to him taking lithium himself in a a series of self-experimentation studies, giving increasing doses of lithium until he reached uh, levels of toxicity, and then going on to give 10 severely ill patients with acute mania in the hospital the uh, lithium salts. This culminated in a publication in the Medical Journal of Australia in 1949, which remains one of the journal's most cited papers. Uh, Now, there is a background to, obviously, these guinea pig experiments. So Cade had come to the conclusion that manic depression was due to the production of excessive amounts of a toxic substance. He didn't know what, but some sort of toxin in the body. 
and he was exploring the possibility of urea uh, and other nitrogenous substances as a causative agent for mania in the urine samples of the patients he was looking after in the hospital. Now, there was a, an interesting old literature which he was aware of, and that was that it was known that lithium could dissolve uric acid stones, kidney stones. This was discovered from the 19th century. And in the mid-19th century, raised uric acid was believed to be a cause for a large number of medical illnesses, not just gout, but diabetes and many other things. And after that, lithiated water was a popular tonic, particularly in Europe and North America, it was taken as a tonic. And small quantities of lithium were added to the beverage seven up. So uh, up until uh, I think it was the early 60s, seven up, the lemonade had uh, some lithium in it as a sort of pet me up tonic. So without Cade and without, you know, this was the background to his experiments. So without Cade, it's unlikely that lithium's efficacy in bipolar disease would ever have been discovered. Uh, and his work actually launched the pharmacological revolution in psychiatry. Uh, if I may, I'd like to just quote a couple of Cade's later comments about his, his own discovery. He was a very modest uh, fellow, but uh, he did get considerable fame, uh, belatedly 20 or 30 years after his original experiments in the 40s. And at that time, he said, uh, I might most kindly describe myself as an enthusiastic amateur, full of curiosity, with fair determination, golden opportunities, inadequate knowledge, and woeful technique. But even the small boy fishing after school in a muddy pond with a string and a bent pin occasionally hauls forth a handsome fish. And then he, he went on to describe how it was possible for him to have actually done these experiments, uh, which of course would probably be impossible today. I was able to go my own way, unhindered by advice, criticism, or caution. This is important. I don't think it could happen these days. One would be suffocated by hospital boards, ethical committees, and heads of department. Instead, I was answering only to my own conscience and personal drive. So that was Cade, really, and he was acknowledged by Shu as the, the prime mover in the lithium story. And I suppose Cade had that eureka discovery about the lithium, but it was Shu that, that took it a step further. And I suppose the longevity of lithium as a therapy in, in psychiatric illness is, is probably reflected by the fact that Chu's paper is, is one of the journals, one of the JNP's most highly cited papers. So what was it that Chu achieved in his 1954 paper? Chu uh, uh, was impressed by Cade's paper, but he reasoned that the general lack of enthusiasm for lithium related in parts to the fact that the pilot trials, including Cade's, had not ruled out some common sources of error. So he thought that by doing perhaps a slightly more rigorous trial, he would be able to convince the world of the efficacy of lithium. So together with some other Danish colleagues, uh, Shu was an academic psychiatrist. I don't think he saw a great number of patients himself, but he had colleagues who he worked closely with. So together, 
they gave lithium salts to 38 patients with acute mania, 21 women, 17 men. And after a period of baseline evaluation, lithium was administered in an open label fashion to some of the patients. And in others, double blind randomization using a placebo was used, switching the treatment at 14 day intervals. Most of the patients were given lithium carbonate in the dose of 0.9 to 1.8 grams a day, but a few were treated with other lithium salts, citrate and chloride. He used a very primitive three-point scale used to assess the severity of mania and, and reported his results as unequivocally positive, possible improvement and no improvement. And the results were that 14 patients improved unequivocally, that's 14 out of 38, and of those, 11 were women. A further 18 patients had a possible effect. And in some of this group, lithium induced a distinct improvement, but spontaneous remission could not be excluded by the investigators. Whereas in the remainder, modest benefit was seen. So these were kind of patients who he felt probably were benefited, but couldn't be absolutely sure. And then there was a final group of six patients who didn't improve despite what were considered therapeutic doses of lithium. And in another five, a transition into a depressive phase occurred requiring lithium withdrawal. In those patients who were responded well, discontinuation of lithium led to prompt recurrence of mania in, in all of them. Uh, which supported his view that the drug was efficacious. Now, he did see toxic symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, postural tremor of the hands, and a sort of flattening of effect with fatigue, but no sedation. So this was in contrast to, for example, neuroleptic drugs, which were also being uh, just coming into clinical practice, produced profound sedation. Uh, he felt that he did measure serum lithium levels in the JNMP study, but didn't feel that these were a reliable measure for assessing whether patients would either respond or for toxicity, and relied very heavily on care very careful clinical observations. So the conclusions in the landmark paper by Shu and colleagues uh, were that lithium was efficacious in the treatment of mania, it provided the treatment was monitored closely by clinical evaluation, serum lithium levels, and ECG recordings. They corroborated Cade's observations that lithium salts did not lead to disabling sedation. And I think that the paper, looking back now, stands out as important, not only because of the confirmatory findings, but, but also because it was really the first attempt in clinical psychiatry to carry out a randomised controlled trial. Yeah, and despite that fact that it was one of the first randomised controlled trials, it, it did meet some resistance in terms of getting published. And indeed, the clinical uptake of lithium um, lagged a little. Can you tell us a, a little bit about those, those barriers Shu and colleagues faced? Uh, so Shu and colleagues uh, submitted their paper to the Journal of Medical Science, which is now known as the British Journal of Psychiatry. It was a, a well-respected journal at that time. The editor was the eminent British psychiatrist, Elliot Slater. 
he reviewed the paper himself. He didn't send it out to peer reviews, as was much more uh, the custom in those days, and he gave it a very low score. Uh, so they then submitted it to the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry, which at that time was, at least among psychiatrists, was con considered an, a bit of an out-of-the-way journal and was not very widely respected or widely read by psychiatrists at that point. So although further support for lithium's efficacy came from two further French studies, Shu's paper had very little immediate impact on the use of lithium or the, or the commercialization of lithium for, for the use in psychiatry. And the, it took really up until um, 15 or 16 years of, of Shu's hard championing of lithium to get it widely accepted and used in clinical medicine. And acceptance, particularly in the United Kingdom, was hampered by a, a rancorous clash between Shu and one of his colleagues, Bastrop, and Michael Shepard, who was a rising star at the Maudsley Hospital and an advocate of rigor rigorous trial methodology in psychiatry. So in 1966, at a small meeting in Gottingen, uh, Shu presented his work with Bastrop, showing that lithium was not only effective in treating mania, but they also had new evidence from a paper that they just published in the archives of general psychiatry, uh, that lithium could actually prevent relapses. So prophylactic treatment with lithium might prevent relapse into mania and, re and reduce suicides. So this dispute, which began in the meeting in Gottingen with verbal disagreements, then spread into a very acrimonious exchange of letters in the Lancet Journal. So Shu accepted methodological limitations of his studies that Shepard and his colleague Blackwell had pointed out, but he found it inexcusable that Shepard insinuated that he had personal motives for studying lithium. And this got quite unpleasant Shepard claimed that Shu's methods were shoddy and unconvincing and that he was an enthusiastic advocate rather than a, an objective investigator of a new psychiatric drug. So in their uh, reply in The Lancet, Shu and Bastrop wrote, our study in lithium prophylaxis was the first of its kind. It could have been a different design and possibly a better one but even a design that is short of the ideal may, in addition to the advantage of being practically feasible, constitute useful information if the study succeeds in proving its point beyond a reasonable doubt. So lithium really remained unpopular in the United Kingdom up until 1970 when it slowly took off. So that's a huge delay, 14 or 15 years since the JNNP paper. And there's no question that lives could have been saved if it had been picked up earlier. And equally in the United States, the Federal Drugs Administration dragged their heels uh, about giving it a license, in part because there was a, a reasonable continuing concern about toxicity, uh, because lithium had been put in 
the salt for cardiac patients and some of those patients had died of lithium toxicity just before Cade's paper had come out. But I think the other reason for delay was that um, no big pharma company was really interested in lithium because it was a generic drug, there was no patent. Whereas the other new drugs in psychiatry, chlorpromacine, thoracine, uh, as it was called, and tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline and imipramine got through the FDA very quickly. So this, this was a drug which really, or a medicine that had to really struggle uh, to get into psychiatry. And it took, in all, shoe championing it mainly with a few other supporters about 15 years to get it from uh, the first clinical papers to uh, actually being used routinely in psychiatry, not just as um, treatment for acute mania, but also as a prophylaxis against relapses in bipolar disease. Uh, so, so there were obviously considerable barriers, but despite those, uh, Shu obviously had a strong conviction in uh, the efficacy of lithium, and he continued to work on it uh, in his latter career. What were some of his um, later achievements? And what do you think was the overall impact of his 1954 paper on the field of psychiatry as we look at it today? Yeah, I... I mean, I think without Shu's determination, it's very unlikely that lithium would ever have seen the light of day in clinical psychiatry. It would have been swamped by the more generic psychotropics, you know. So phenothiazines, for example, cured everything. You know, there were a powerful sedative could be used to treat mania, could be used to treat schizophrenia uh, and so on. So the other drugs of the golden era of psychopharmacology of the 50s had a more wide spectrum of benefits, whereas lithium was very, very specific in its treatment for mania, and I think it could easily have got lost. Uh, Shu never gave up. I mean, he continued to research and write about lithium right up to his death at the age of 86 in, in the year 2005. And he tackled really everything in his later publications. He looked at its effect on artistic creativity in bipolar writers and artists. Uh, he looked at its effect on kidney function. He wrote about strategies to minimize its toxicity. And he identified in a series of papers the very best candidates for treatment. And he did all this himself because he had no pharma support. So it, this, this was all work done in an academic department of psychiatry in Denmark, not work that was being sponsored by a rich pharma company. Uh, so he deserves enormous credit. Now, you know, if you look at the literature now, lithium has a very good modern evidence base, and it's the only psychotropic drug for bipolar disease that has been shown conclusively to reduce suicide. Uh, having said that, however, it's in danger of being lost because it's not got any, it's a, a generic drug, it's not got any piston from big pharma. And certainly in the United States, some of the anticonvulsant drugs like carbamazepine, topiramate and so on are being used much more as first-line drugs than lithium, despite the lack of evidence uh, or, or the lesser evidence that they're effective. So... It's, it's a drug that needs defending by psychiatrists. I think if you talk to 
the majority of psychiatrists, at least the ones I've spoken to in the United Kingdom, most of them will still tell you that it's the most efficacious treatment for bipolar disease. But yes, a number of their colleagues are not necessarily using it anymore as first line treatment, largely because of fears of toxicity. Well, I very much want to thank Professor Andrew Lees for that superb commentary on the 1954 paper by Shu and colleagues. And I'd remind all of our listeners that both the up-to-date commentary and the original 1954 paper are both available to download now at the JNNP website. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.